Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common. Go head-to-head to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Mirthful Mystery Melee. So, on Monday's episode, it was game on, and we certainly weren't bored with Clue. But today, we're coming right up to date as Ryan Johnson bricks it in the best way possible by returning to the world of whodunits after his divisive dalliance with Star Wars. Daniel Craig goes full foghorn leghorn as we dive into 2019's Knives Out. At the end of this show, we will crown a winner, but which film will it be? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Potters. A thousand knives, the cow and the shotgun. Where did you come up with that? I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. So, yeah. Mirthful Mystery Melee Part 2. I picked these movies, Clue versus Knives Out. And the connection, as a little bit of a reminder, is these are fun whodunits. Do you know what they are? They're whofunits. Or with this one, Alex, could it not be a whodunit? Oh, good. Oh, oh God, good. yes. That was, that was great. A whodunit. Yeah, lovely. Lovely. Um, so Monday, uh, Victoria took us through Clue. Uh, today, Chris Tilly is taking us through Knives out. So, do you want to ta- ta- take us on a, a journey, Christopher? Take us on a journey. Easy for you to say, Alex. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Okie dokie. The morning after his 85th birthday, Harlan Thromby is found dead with the cause seemingly a self inflicted wound to the neck. Indeed, with knife still in hand and an uninterrupted circle of blood spatter around his body, it looks like an open and shut case. A pair of cops interview Harlan's offspring, who are dysfunctional as they are rich and as odious as they are entitled. Oh, you know what, Richard? You want to go? Bet, Skippy, let's go. You want to go? Come on, Watch That's because Harlan Thromby was one of the most successful crime writers in history, amassing a fortune that his children have been leeching off their entire lives, money that has maybe even encouraged some of them to think they are above the law. Excuse me. Sir? We're officers of the law? You're going to run me in? I don't feel like talking. I'm distraught. There's still no murder, however, until Benoit Blanc enters the fray. With an eccentric turn of phrase and while sucking on an oversized cigar, the last of the gentleman sleuths explains that he is there at the behest of a mysterious client who suspects foul play and has played him a sizable sum to solve Thromby's murder. And so the game is afoot. <laughs> <laughs> Cheat, but all right. 
Harlan started out with a rusty Smith Corona and built himself into one of the best-selling mystery writers of all time. 30 languages, over 80 million copies sold. You guys fans? I mean, I don't do much fiction reading myself. Big but... fan. I'm a big fan. Who is that guy? Uh, Mr. Blanc is a private investigator of great renown. I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. You're famous. The night of his demise, the family had gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. And your son, Ransom, did he attend as well? Yes, but he left early. I think Linda was upset. Walt would get a little Irish courage in him. He'd get into it with Harlan. What? Richard said what? Are you baiting me, detective? Attempting to be thorough so we can figure out the manner of death. You mean if someone killed him? You think one of us, one of his family, Walt Walt killed him? Mr. Blanc, I just buried my father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I suspect foul play. So, um, a little bit of background on this one. When did you first see this, Vicky? Uh, last week, because I was going to watch it ages ago, but you told me not to. You said save it for the podcast, so I saved it for the podcast. Excellent. Alex? Uh, I saw it earlier this year, and then I saw it again uh, at the weekend. Excellent. What a terrific (laughs) section. I went to Toronto Film Festival last year, which is why I missed an episode or two of Clash of the Titles. Um, I saw it there. I reviewed it there. And then I went to Fantastic Fest in Austin, where I was interviewing Ryan Johnson about the film. Uh, And I know one of the actors in the film, Noah Segan, and he introduced me to Ryan at the bar. So I was able to have a chat with Ryan about our podcast, which is why Ryan agreed (laughs) to chip into the podcast and say uh, some stuff about Brick and also pick his favourite out of Brick and young Sherlock Holmes. But I asked uh, Ryan um, in my interview with him where the idea came from and he told me about wanting to take a whodunit but put the engine of a Hitchcock thriller in the middle of it. This is what he said. He said, I started with really just a conceptual idea, which was I knew I wanted to do a whodunit. I'd been a fan of them since I was a kid, but I also kind of agree with what Hitchcock said about whodunits, which was that he thought the pitfall of them was that they were a long build up to a big surprise at the end. So the danger is always that there will be a lag in the middle when you are just gathering clues and waiting for the big solution to be sprung on you. So it was at first a a genre exercise in trying to get everything I love about the whodunit into this movie and giving it a bit of more of a Hitchcock thriller engine. So that's what Ryan had to say. But also, I got in touch wow. with Noah and asked if he'd be up for speaking to us about the background to this movie. And he said yes. So let's hear what Noah says about how this movie got made. Hello, Noah Segan, and welcome to Clash of the Titles. Thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to be here with you, Chris, uh, from uh, on the other side of a whole continent. Yeah, you're our first LA guest. So we start out each clash by talking about random connections between the films. uh, And this week it's Clue and Knives Out. And I believe you have a very specific connection to one of the actors in Clue. I do. I, uh, years ago, uh, was in a movie about the very famous seminal uh, LA punk band, The Germs. And uh, I played the drummer, Don Bowles, of, of the Germs. Um, and uh, Darby Crash, the famous, charismatic, enigmatic singer of the Germs, died. And we, uh, in the movie, had a, you know, there's a, there's a, a scene that was supposed to be a funeral for Darby. And the actor who played the clergy at the funeral was none other than Lee Ving, lead singer of Fear who plays Mr. Body, uh, or the butler, I guess, depending on who 
you talk to. Um, Good clue, spoiler knowledge. alert. Uh, in, uh, in, in, in Clue. So what was he like? He was super cool. I mean, I had him sign my guitar. I'm a big fan of fear, and I'm a big fan of, of that era of of culture that they were such a big part of. And, um, uh, he was just, you know, he's a, you know, a lot of these, like all these old rocker guys, he was sort of tired and, you know, happy to, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, regale you with tales of, uh, debauchery from the early eighties. <laughs> did, did, did you talk about clue or was it not the time or the place? I don't recall talking about clue. I don't think we we actually talked about Clue, unfortunately. Fair enough. Well, let's talk about Knives Out because um, you know Ryan Johnson, uh, the writer-director, better than most, having uh, been in all of his movies. So when did he first tell you about this project? With Ryan, he has a tendency to really, really, really marinate, ruminate, consider projects before they get to even a script stage. And so I think, I mean, it has to have been years ago that he first even said, I want to do a whodunit and I want to do a sort of classic kind of, you know, um, cast of many uh, mystery in in, in this style. Um, And obviously, I think it was after uh, he was done with Star Wars that he felt, you know, kind of comfortable sort of approaching that, you know, when, when that job was done, he felt like he could sit down and actually write it. And, um, it came together incredibly quick. He started the script in like April and we were shooting it by October. Like it was some incredibly short period of time, but I think that's because he'd been thinking about it for years. Yeah. And I think you owe some of it to James Bond, uh, No Time to Die being pushed back three months when so suddenly Daniel Craig became available and then you're shooting. Yes. I think that had a lot to do with it as soon as, yeah, he had his window when Daniel became available that was you know, I don't know, wasn't available <laughs> earlier than that. Yeah. And they just said, we've got to do this and we've got to do it now. Um, so what was it like entering that big house in Massachusetts for the first time? A little intimidating because it's a it's a historically significant home. It belongs to, I think it's been in this, it's been in the same family for generations and generations. And the, you know, oldest part of the home dates back to, I don't know, revolutionary times or something. It was, it's an it's a incredibly, incredibly um, significant home. And, you know, when you go into a house like that, you are very circumspect. And so, you know, we saw this big, beautiful house and I think everybody was just tiptoeing around it. And then, of course, it had been dressed to look like this incredible menagerie of artifacts that that Harlan, the author played by uh, uh, Christopher Plummer, um, had collected. And so it was sort of this combination of like a perfect set, but having been made by a perfect location, if that makes any Mm. sense. And I'm wondering if we might have another Clue connection here, because I know uh, in Clue, that house was was an actual set, but they ended up playing um, on the table in the billiard room every day, and it became like a social hub for the cast and crew mm-hmm. on that movie. Am I right in thinking there was a games room in the house you guys were shooting in? Well, there, there was uh, a moment. I want to say it was the first or second day of shooting. It was very early on. And, you know, it's very common that, you know, because you need all these, you need all these, these, uh, I think in the UK they might call it, I think in, in 
they might call it a circus. We call it a base camp, but it's basically like you park all of the trailers and cars and trucks in a big field that you find somewhere or a parking lot somewhere that you find, right. That's, you know, close, but not too close to where you're shooting. And usually it's about a five or 10 or 15 minute walk or ride between the two. And it's very common on a lot of projects to go from set in between takes or, you know, while they're resetting the camera for something or other, it's very common to just go back to the base camp and go back to your little trailer, whatever it is. Well, day one or day two, Jamie Lee Curtis said, I'm not going back there. This is a really cool house. I'm going to hang out here and I'm going to kind of stay in the zone with all you guys. And, you know, and, and, and I'll have my coffee uh, right here with everybody else. And just, you know, it'll make everything a lot easier and we'll kind of stay in the, in the right mood and mindset. And of course, Jamie, who is the matriarch of the movie was the matriarch of the set. And everybody said, you're absolutely right, Jamie. That's a brilliant idea. We're going to do it with you. And the next thing we knew they had, you know, taken all of our little chairs that we're supposed to sit in and they put them in this basement games room. And that's where the cast hung out in between takes. Nobody went back to their trailers. Nobody, you know, went off into their own little world. We all sort of, hung around and played parlor games and billiards and all that stuff. That sounds like a dream. I mean, uh, Ryan said he had a blast directing that amazing cast. What was it like acting alongside them? Uh, You know, it was a combination of uh, uh, intimidation and uh, a great blessing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, here's the thing is is that obviously there's exactly what anybody would think, which is that you are, you are working alongside these people who you, idolize and who have affected you in ways well beyond your work, right? These are people who you, 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 you just love the stories that they've told and, and they're all very kind and they're all, you know, interesting and funny. And they have all of the, you know, the stuff that you would expect from these people who are like, you know, the, the best of the best, but along with best of the best, comes with this knowledge that you have everything you need to do your job. You know what I mean? Like when you're acting opposite these, these, these performers, you're just like, well, I, I I guess we have no excuse for this to be bad because these are the best people in the world at their job. (laughs) I mean, your character acts like something of a fanboy around the thrombies. Um, Did being surrounded (laughs) by all those famous faces make that easier to play? Yes, there was there was little to no acting uh, <laughs> going on from from me. Um, you know, it was no, it was it was it was very easy to uh, sort of fall into that that feeling of um, appreciation and and respect. And um, you know, I think um, that there was a humorous tone that we all kind of locked into very early on. Uh, nobody took anything too seriously. And I think that, you know, I, I got to really always do that. I didn't really have any, every other, most of the other characters had some sort of serious moment or two, and I never really did. And so I got to kind of just toe the line and kind of play that beat the whole time for everybody who needed to, to key into it occasionally, you know? But with all those amazing heavyweights on screen at the same time, did it ever get competitive when the cameras were rolling? 
I don't think so. I think uh, at that level, it's not competition because you're all on the same team. Mm. You know, you're 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 battling for the uh, uh, hearts and minds of the audience. <laughs> your um your character Trooper Wagner um and and Lieutenant Elliot, we don't learn a lot about them in the film. So, did Ryan have a backstory for those characters? And if not, did you come up with a story for Wagner? That's a good question. You know, I think that the one of the big things that that we kind of kept talking about for my character was obviously he's a fanboy and 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 that he kind of is a bit of a Greek chorus sort of uh, uh, vibe for him. But really just this idea that he's like a dad, he's like a goofy dad and that his ambition and his purpose, he has there's nothing ulterior going on. So even if he's not particularly good at his job, as a cop. Um, and I think, you know, that, that the relationship between he and, 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 and Elliot uh, is obviously, you know, it's sort of buddy comedy kind of classic, you know, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, sort of, there's a straight man and there's a goofy guy, you know, but I think that, that, that that sort of goes for Lakeith's character as well, where you're not wondering what's going on under the surface. You know, you're not wondering if there's a, uh, if there's a secret that needs to be exposed and that in and of itself is very like interesting in a movie where everybody is suspect. So that automatically, the fact that you say, well, there's nothing suspect about these guys makes them suspect, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my last question is, what did you think the first time you heard Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc accent? I was like, this, this is, this is definitely a comedy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, I gotta say in all seriousness. Um, and, and, and that was, that was a joke because I think by that point we all knew exactly the movie we were in. Mm. Uh, you don't just show up and, uh, and, and open your mouth and get to work. You, you know, there's quite a bit of preparation that goes into it. I think, um, I was not shocked <laughs> and I think that, and I don't think anybody on set or in the movie was shot because you put in the time and the work and, you know, he, he is such an incredible committed actor. Um, I don't know that I've ever worked with anybody who operates under his level of sort of preparation. He is such a professional, trained, experienced actor. There was not one thing that he had not considered and that he had not prepared for and that he wasn't sort of on top of. And when you do that, you're, you you kind of let yourself, it, it, it loosens you up. Um, this is a very long-winded way of saying that when the voice came out, people were just like, this is the voice. Of course it's the voice. I think it shocked the audience more than it shocked us because we were just like all like, oh yeah, this is everything that's happening is sort of perfectly formed. Even this this crazy voice. <laughs> so that was a bit of background on the movie, courtesy of one of the film's stars, and we'll have more from Noah at the very end of the show. But right now, should we talk about the film itself? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, this movie kicks off after Harlan Thromby's death on the night of his 85th birthday. Uh, his body is found, and one week later, his nurse Martha is summoned to the house by Lieutenant Elliot, played by Lakeith Stanfield, Trooper Wagner, played by Noah, and Detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig. Uh, Blanc, as I said, doesn't know who's hired him, but that person suspects foul play, so together with the officers, he interviews the suspects one by one. So I thought, rather than going through this film's plot, let's talk about the characters. Yeah. Um, kicking off with Linda Drysdale, knee thromby, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
she is proud that she's built her business up from the ground, but her siblings resent the fact that Harlan has that set that business up financially in the first place. And I think that's something that we get throughout the film. Everyone claiming they're self-sufficient, but actually it's really daddy's money that's yeah. um, meant they can do what they do. Um, she is the only one that doesn't seem to have a motive watching it this second time. That's a good point. Mm. What are your thoughts about uh, Jamie Lee Curtis' Linda Drysdale? I like her. I think she's great because she is, like, super smart. So when Benoit is trying to bait her, she goes, oh, yeah. I'm, No, I'm not going to be baited by you. You think you can bait me into revealing something? Which is great, but works best because then it does a smash cut to her husband, Don Johnson, telling him everything, <laughs> yeah. going, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of clever smash cuts like that. And, and Ryan said that actually this was quite a boring, a, a difficult script to read. When he, when he sent it to people, they mm-hmm. found it very hard because there's so many characters to remember. And there's so much cutting backwards and forwards that when you're watching it, mm-hmm. it's quite easy to understand. But when you're yeah. reading it, it's very hard to, to, to cut between all these different timelines and characters. I have a weakness for a smash cut. I do love a smash cut. Yeah. How do you feel about um, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, her character in this Victoria? Because... Um, there is a point uh, which I went, ooh, where she uses a word that you have banned on the podcast. <laughs> what is it? Uh, she says of Marta, she says to Marta when they find out with the will reading. Oh, that, I know the word you're going to um, say. What? <laughs> that, that all the money has been given to Marta. She goes, why? Why has he done this? Were you boinking him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's such a misstep, a huge misstep. The I character I, I, of her I, intellect, of her um, focus would not use that word. It's a childish word used by little boys. I didn't realise boinking what, was what, an international you, word. I thought it was English. I. I was very surprised to hear it. Maybe it's like dubbed. I mean, what, did you describe it as, what? are we Are we on Tier 5 Friday in the 90s? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm laughing at myself. That's awful. <laughs> That's terrible. God, do I know, like, no limit. I'm funny, aren't I? <laughs> I can't believe how much your own line has tickled you. <laughs> Look, when it's quality, it's quality. It doesn't matter who said it. Uh, Linda says that she's fond of playing games with her father. And as I say, there's a lot of setup and payoff in this film. And you realise at the end that she meant that literally as there's a game involving invisible ink yeah. that has a big payoff uh, and a bit of a twist. And that involves her husband, Richard Drysdale, played by Don Johnson. Um, he's been having an affair uh, which gives him a motive. Mm. Um, and also, he's there so the film uh, can take the piss out of Trump's America. Yes. So how did you feel about Richard, played by Don Johnson, I have Vicky? to say, it was a real eye-opener for me because, and I'm not saying this sarcastically, and I'm not saying this with snark, but I do, as most people do, live in a very self-reinforcing liberal bubble. I'm not saying everyone's liberal, but that's the bubble I live in. So I've never, ever heard, because I've chosen to ignore it, because I don't want to hear it, I've never heard the other side of the argument for keeping children in cages who have crossed over illegally. Um, I've never heard it. I don't even know. I don't get it. I don't know what it is. And to hear the way that he passes it out was fascinating. Because obviously, if I spent more time in those circles or excuse me, sorry, more time in North America, then I'd be more likely to hear the justification for it. And I found it really interesting because I didn't think he was a villain necessarily for saying those things any more than I think you just are villainous for thinking it's okay to keep children in cages. But I could see how you could be convinced by his argument because he makes the argument. um, Mm. It's quite calm. 
it's, it, it weirdly, it started to seem quite reasonable. And I mean that in a very, very loose way, as in I wasn't just, inst- I just, it didn't instantly dismiss him as a monster, which was really interesting to me. Are you now keeping Does your children in cages, Vicky? I, I feel mean, like that's I, what you're building up to here. What I, they're my kids, so I can, I can kind of do what I like. I don't really like it when the government gets involved. Um, that's... There's um, there's a really funny moment in that scene that I hadn't noticed the first time I watched it, where he asks Marta to come over and yeah. give her opinion in, in a very reasonable way, and he's like, "Yeah, look, come over. Marta's great. Marta's great." And he's like, oh, "We want your opinion. What 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 do you feel about this?" And as she starts to answer, he completely just like without thinking, just hands her his yeah. empty plate. That's to amazing. Take away. Like she's the staff. Like, oh. Yeah, well, she is staff, isn't she? But like she's the help. But also... Well, she's a nurse. She's not She's not there to yeah. pick up cups. And but, also that was a um, Don Johnson ad lib. It's really, really good. And the, that scene, it it's good yeah. to see that scene twice because when you first see him say, oh, come over here. It's, it's fine. You know, just come and talk to us. It does seem quite a reasonable request and it seems free of, uh, fairly free of tension. Then when you see it from her point of view and the reaction on her face... It makes those power dynamics so obvious. She has no choice but to walk over and listen to this bullshit about where she's from and how her family did it right and all of that. Just inexcusable, awful nonsense. But she has to go over and listen to it and she has to pretend that she's kind of considering it because those are her employers. They all get where she's from wrong. Yeah. Various different points. Ecuador, (laughs) Paraguay. Paraguay, I I, th- I think I honestly I'm with you, Victoria. If you want to keep your babies in cages, yeah. you should be allowed to. Of course. I mean, I actively I actively chose not to keep my dog in a cage, and that was a personal choice. But a lot of people keep do- keep dogs in cages. Yeah. So what I you think- what you fail to realize it's harder to look after a baby than it is to look after it- a dog, and so it's actually it makes my life easier if they're just in cages. Right. I think it's hard. I, I mean, I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't have kids, but I'm pretty sure most people will definitely agree with me that dogs are more difficult to look after. <laughs> Do you think so? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think so. I think I think a lot of people right now are nodding along going, that's absolutely true. That's because yes. the bubble you live in is a self-reinforcing dog-based bubble. Ooh, Back yeah. to Knives Out. Anyway, um, yes. So we've Sorry. got <laughs> Walt Thromby, uh, played by Michael Shannon. He runs his dad's publishing company, which basically means his dad gives him a book twice a year. And as he's told by his brother-in-law, he doesn't run shit as Harlan uh, doesn't allow ad- adaptations of his work, which is where the money is. So the pair of them got into it at the birthday party and Harlan fired Walt, which is Walt's motive for mm. the murder. Um, so Michael Shannon very much playing against type here by being kind of weak. Yeah, um, but playing kind <laughs> right. of... yeah, but also really fucking menacing. Yeah, like so, Michael so Shannon <laughs> always is in everything ever. Yeah, I'm I'm little secretly in love with Michael Shannon. Oh my god! So I saw um, I was at uh, the Dean Street. I was at a restaurant on Dean Street. Um, having some food, Michael Shannon comes in on his own and just sort of has a drink at the bar. Were you scared? You should have been so scared. Uh, he came over and he put his fist in my mashed potato and I just let him do it. He's very funny. Uh, he does it in this film and he does it when you meet him as well. He's got a real deadpan sense of humour where bet. you can't tell if he's joking or not. And or he is joking. Yeah, yeah. He's actually... I, I couldn't work it out when he took his fist out and it was covered in mashed potato. I'm like, I don't get it. Is it funny or is it scary? It's mm. just great. You just don't know where you stand with him. Um, uh, we've also got uh, his sister Joni Thromby, played by Tony Collette. She's a lifestyle guru who runs a skin skincare company that focuses on focuses on self sufficiency. She's brilliant. Um, right. 
Did anyone else get major Gwyneth Paltrow vibes from her? Yes. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> I, I did. I didn't. I didn't until <clears throat> she tells you what it's called. She goes, "Yeah, you mean flam?" <laughs> I was like, <laughs> the minute she said, "Yeah, flam," it promotes a healthy lifestyle. I was like, "It's goop. It's goop." So Joni has been paying for her daughter Meg's tuition, but um, sorry, Harlan has been paying for Meg's tuition, but Joni has been double dipping uh, £100,000 a year. She's been stealing from her dad for the last four years. He pays her the final check and then he's halting the payments. He's cutting off her allowance. And so her motive is that she's no longer getting money from her dad. Uh, Tony Collette looked like she's having a laugh here. She's fantastic. The line when... Uh, I think I think it's Daniel Craig at this point asks anyway someone asks her about her you know how she gets on with the rest of the family because she's technically she's an in-law she's not a blood relative and she says she's at once freed by and supported by my family that's that's kind of how I feel in here I love that line I'm having that line you should feel that way. Yeah, the um, bit where the bit where she's trying to pick Jamie Lee Curtis up off the couch to dance with her and Jamie Lee Curtis just keeps shaking her off I was like, that's great. And I I'm, I was totally with Jamie Lee Curtis in that moment. I'm like, I hate it when people just grab you and go, come on, dance. I'm like, get the fuck off me. Not a natural dancer. And no, not a natural dancer. Our next suspect is Hugh Ransom Drysdale, uh, who is Linda and Richard's son. Um, he doesn't seem to do anything uh, other than be supported by Harlan. Um, though we do discover later in the film that he was the author's research assistant one summer, which gives him knowledge and skills that come into play later in the film. Uh, Ransom, uh, played by Chris Evans, has a huge argument with Harlan the night of his birthday and storms off, uh, making that potentially his motive. Up your ass. Up your <laughs> ass. And, and, you, and in fact, you know what? Eat shit. Eat shit. Eat shit. Definitely eat shit. Brilliant. Did you read this? In- I read an interview with Chris Evans where he talked about playing a character like that, which is obviously sort of the antithesis of the, the characters that he had, you know, is best known for. Um, and I just think it's such a good quote because it really eloquently perfectly sums up what Hugh slash Ransom is like. And um, Chris Evans said, there's a certain physicality of a person who is soaked in confidence, truly marinated in that kind of entitlement, which is such a good statement. And it involves minimal eye contact, a constant state of recline, whether they're sitting or standing, unapologetically making that space their own, which is such... I just I was really taken with that because, again, it's about these power dynamics. Like Mm. Someone like him... He does take up a lot of room because he owns that space and he feels no shame and he feels no, um, his confidence has no, so it's, it's unbroken, that he feels that he's entitled to everything. And also actually slightly, he's been done um, a misservice. So he's wronged as well. Uh, I just thought it was a really... <laughs> you mean a disservice? Disservice. Yeah, why are you making everything about miss? <laughs> yeah, you said miss. You did, well, yeah, you did, mi- you did miss joint on Monday and yeah. now miss service. I'm having, a really, I'm having a really stressful week. Do you think I'm having a sort of mental break about... This would be bad. If you're going to fully go, can you wait till the end of the podcast? <laughs> fully go. We've got about 40 minutes left. Please hold on. Oh, my God, I can't wait for the day I can fully go. I'm really holding it in reserve at the moment. Anyway, anyway, carry on. No, that seems like a good time to take a break. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Nicole Goodman. And I'm Lauren Mishcon. In 2020, self-care can seem like yet another overwhelming job for women. Every week, we test out a new kind of self-care so you don't have to. Firstly, can we just clarify how we pronounce it? Kombucha? Kombucha. Yeah. Kombucha. Kombucha. Self-care club. Wellness road tested. So that was the first day. You know, it was just the not slipping into the complete default mode of what I normally do, which is have a go at my husband for what he hasn't done and, you know, all of that stuff, I kind yeah. of stopped. Okay, so it was more the absence of meanness rather than the projection <laughs> of kindness at this <laughs> initial point. Yes. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. This week we are testing out menstrual cups. How are you feeling? Dreading it. I know that you love to give a practice that's all about down below. I'm not interested. I've never even really thought about it since before I met you. You've that- never thought about your vagina until you met me. It doesn't get a lot of air. <laughs> doesn't get a lot of air time. No, it doesn't. The Self Care Club is a Stakano production. I think on this on this particular episode, we've discovered that Vicky is in a weird place. <laughs> Very good. No, but she's still holding on for dear life. So uh, let's get through this before she has the full breakdown. Um, speaking of ransom, um, Ryan uh, talked about um, Han Solo. Uh, uh, as a sort of comparison in that Han Solo doesn't really show up in Star Wars till about 45 minutes in. I was going to say, not because he's an asshole, And changes surely. the film. And he said he left a, sin- a similar amount of time before dropping Ransom properly in the film because the character's importance and energy lights up the movie when you feel... So when you feel like you've had a handle on who's done it, potentially, yeah. suddenly he's dropped in and it's like yeah. a nuclear bomb. A mystery bomb. guess. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, and there are some other characters introduced. Donna, played by Ricky, Rind- Ricky Lindholm, who's Walt's wife. Uh, Meg, who's Joni's daughter. Jacob Thromby, uh, played by J.D. Martell, who's Walt's son, who has a bit of a role. He's sort of this um, alt-right troll, potentially, mm. you know, little Nazi kid. <laughs> um, but those are the main suspects, apart from Marta Cabrera, who, as Alex said, is either from Ecuador, Paraguay, Uruguay, or Brazil, or potentially even Mexico, which yeah. no one says um, in the film. Um, she has a regurgitative reaction to mistruths, which makes her a human lie detector. Uh, she's played by Ana de Armas, and she was Harlan's nurse, but became a friend and a confidant. He started telling her everything. Uh, the family like her. They call her a hard worker and a good girl. They claim she's like part of the family, even though they didn't invite her to the funeral. They all wanted her there, mm-hmm. but they were all apparently outvoted. Yeah. Um, and she was the last person to see him alive. Doesn't have a motive until the will is read and the family discovers... All of Harlan's money is going to her. Mm. Um, so, Marta, thoughts on her? So, this is where I started to have a bit of a problem because I appreciate what you've said and you know how much I love Ryan Johnson. You know I how do. excited I was 
um, when he uh, basically came on our podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, the, I love the idea that he wants to kind of re uh, reboot the Who Done It a little bit by giving it a bit more of an engine in the middle section, which I totally understand, and not just have people running, sitting around, piecing together clues. I think the way it's done here. The problem for me is that Marta is an absolute angel. She's played angelically. Like, there's no hint of malice or danger or snide. That's fine. But what that means is in the middle section, uh, Daniel Craig's, we sort of get this arbitrary 48 hours more to um, explore the if there's been a murder, a bad murder or not. So that means, and uh, and we clear up then around that section that Marta did it. So what we're then looking at is 48 hours in which to pin it on a girl that we love. And that didn't do it for me. Like, I love her. I want her to, in quote marks, like, get away with it. And although there's some fun to be had in watching her cover her tracks when she's going round the premises with um, the police officers and Daniel Craig, it wasn't quite enough to cover for me, like, to to make up for the fact that I'm watching her not not be persecuted, but she's going to get caught and I don't want her to be caught. So she either needed for me to be... Go on, what? And also, who carries a fridge magnet round in their pocket uh, to make a video cassette go blank? It's off. It's from I thought the, that was in it. It, was, it belonged to the man that made the video, didn't it? Or was it her fridge magnet? No. Oh, no I just, I'm su- yeah, I just got some surprise that she had a fridge magnet in her pocket. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's just a bit convenient. Yeah. Um, so that, that, I mean, but that's it. And uh, the vomit thing, I'm not a fan of. Like, just not. I just, I don't. I just I can see where that's going and she does such a good job of vomiting in a way that's kind of in character which is amazing um but the minute Benoit Blanc is like oh so you're my human lie detector it's like okay yeah it takes a big suspension of disbelief doesn't it it takes a big leap there when you're trying to take everything you're seeing at face value yeah um particularly when we've also met Benoit Blanc who is somewhat of a larger-than-life character. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Are we allowed to talk about the accent? We... I'm just getting on to that. So I, I asked Noah what he thought about uh, the accent the first time he heard it, and I was going to ask you guys what you thought of the accent uh, the first time you heard it. But I'm going to play a little bit of it and let me know, and then we'll talk about it, OK? OK. You ready? Yeah. Now what I say, what's the big idea bashing me on the noggin with a rolling pin? Anyone's head, boy. But that's a head. But that's a joke, boy. You missed it. Went right past you. You got to keep... I say you gotta keep on your toes. Put toes, that is. Put the fast ones get right by you. There we go. So that is Daniel Craig. That's <laughs> Benoit Blanc. Uh, the last of the gentleman sleuths. Uh, what do you guys think of Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc and the accent? It, it took me hugely by surprise because he's called Benoit Blanc. So I thought, oh, he's gonna be Belgian and it's gonna be a take on Poirot. And then it wasn't. And then for me, the accent, it was so distracting because I spent ages going, oh, what was that thing that Kevin Spacey was in? And it's Frank Underwood from House of Cards. Like, Mm. almost, to me, indistinguishable. Mm. And it was so distracting. Once I got my ear in, it was okay. But it it sort of took me out of the film for about five minutes, which is a shame. Alex? I love it. I think it's fantastic because he wears fairly normal clothes. Like, he doesn't have an iconic thing about him. Like, I think all the best sleuths need. Like, Columbo had his Mac at Poirot, like, had his moustache or, like, his own affectations. And, like, he just wears a suit to Benoit Blanc. So I think the accent actually gives him that thing that marks him out as um, unique. 
and especially against the rest of the cast. Uh, yeah, you also got a gigantic cigar um, a couple of times that's sort of laughably big. Yeah. Uh, but um, he says his presence is ornamental. He's respectful. He'll be respectful, quiet, and a passive observer of the truth, which nobody's buying. Um, I asked Ryan about that character, and he said the big thing everyone points to is there's always something about the detective that disarms whoever they are talking to. So you don't take them seriously until it's too late. And, you know, obviously, Miss Marple, Colombo, they've kind of got that going on. Uh, with Blanc, having him be slightly self-important and inflated, but also have this folksy charm to him, and the fact that he has this southern accent when he's amidst all these New England wasps, you feed those elements in, but it's really what's up there on screen, Daniel just making this guy real. I, I found the accent distracting the first time I watched it, and the second time I had no problem with it. Yeah. I knew it was coming, because it was a surprise to me as well. Mm. And it just seems weird coming out of his mouth. But, um, yeah, it's I had like, no problem with like, it. Like, but it's like the one in, He does another Southern accent in Logan Lucky, doesn't he, as well? I think he's, I think he's great. I, Daniel Craig, as an actor, has grown on me so much since I first saw him. And I love him when... I think I've said it before on the pod that I love him when he's not James Bond. And I think it's so exciting that now he's, like, leaving Bond. We're going to see more roles like this in Knives Out, like, where he just has fun. And it's great to see him having fun. My problem is that I don't, I don't quite get the character. And it's nothing to do with his performance. It's to do with how the character's written. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think about Benoit Blanc. Like, when it's Columbo, Columbo plays a kind of bumbling fool to lure whoever he's like suspects into a false sense of security and make them think that they're smarter than him. But like there are moments in this where Blanc genuinely seems like a bumbling fool who actually has no real idea what's going on. Like and he sort of does like the bit where he's like listening to his music on his iPod in the car while all hell is breaking loose behind him with the police turning up and everything. I'm like, he's just sort of like, ah, he's not on the ball. Like, actually not on the ball. It's not a ruse. Agreed. Um, Yeah, it was a good point. Um, So we've met the characters. Let's talk a bit about the set pieces because we've got the murder or the accidental murder or the suicide. Um, That we are shown 30 minutes in, so it's kind of the Columbo thing by showing us what happened early on. Yeah. But unlike a Columbo, we're actually on the side of the potential murderer when we're shown it. Um, I won't go into details, but it it's, it's involves his drugs that he's taking, the vials getting dropped and swapped and injected, and he's got 10 minutes less and, to live. And because he is a brilliant crime writer and because uh, he doesn't want to see Marta go to prison and because her mother is undocumented, so will be deported, and because he's about to give her all his money, which she doesn't know, uh, she follows his instructions to leave, break back in, pretend to be him, leave the way she came, and then he tells her how to lie so she won't be sick. <laughs> and so all that happens half an hour in, which is unusual for this kind of film. Um, then the next set piece is the will reading, which is most uh, enjoyable. Can I just say about the murder, but sorry, not the murder, the accidental murder of Christopher Plummer by uh, his nurse. He takes that very well, doesn't yeah. he? He's like, uh, so you've just killed me. I've got 10 minutes to live. All right, cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let me just uh, let me get you out of this pickle you're in. That there isn't a, the moment where I mean, personally, I'd be bloody livid. I'd be like, "You've done fucking what? <laughs> you you've killed me. You you put 
you've put injected me with the wrong thing. Because at this point, we don't know it's all about the viscosity and it was an honest mistake because she's actually a good nurse. You're like, you had a glass of champagne and you injected me with the wrong fucking thing and now I'm going to die. <laughs> you are a terrible Bye. nurse. <laughs> Remind I, me never to go on a pub crawl. But I really think, I really think that that's his character though, isn't it? He's quite content. He's had enough of his family. He's had 85 years. Yeah, and but... I think immediately, because he's so super intelligent, yeah. he's seen all the ways this is going to play out in his head and he's immediately can start giving her instructions. Do you not think it's a bit clumsy just before then, though, where, like, they may, they have a moment where he says, he actually goes, I don't fear death. And yeah. you're like, you only, <laughs> you're only having him say that so that when you kill him, you're like, oh, well, he's actually said it's fine if he dies because that's not good enough. If Like, when you say, I don't fear death, you don't expect to be injected with poison 10 minutes later and then go, <laughs> well, I did just say I, I don't fear death, so you got me. You got. I'm fine with this. It made me think we were going to do, and I know this would probably be impossible, but he set it all up because he wanted to die. So he set it all up, and that's what we think, maybe sort of somewhere in Act 3, that it's like, oh, it was all an elaborate setup, but then it flips again because this says more about my personality than about the film, but I wanted a moment where Marta sort of, you realise that she hasn't got the Naxalone in her bag because she wanted this to happen as well. And she has had her money, uh, sorry, her eye on the money. And I know it completely unravels everything about her being, she's perfect and she is, her character is unassailable. But wouldn't it have been fun if there was like a little bit of a cheeky wink, not literally a wink, somewhere where she's like, yeah, I fucking knew it. And now I've got loads of money. Like that kind of thing. No? Sorry. So, I mean, that's, that's, that is, you, uh, that's a very different film because yeah. <laughs> then she is doing the murder. So, Marta is the murderer. Yes. Right. I actually have a question. And I think it's an oversight on my part. Like, why doesn't, why is it that Ransom, when, like, why does he try and help her? Because if he didn't try and help her, oh, yeah. And just, like, like when she did it, she and like like the the slayer rule would have applied, and he'd have got the money he was trying to get from her anyway. Yeah, I don't understand that bit. Neither do I. Chris, can you help? Have you got anything on on that? There's so many different parts where Ransom is helping her and isn't helping her. Which specific aspect of this are you talking about? When they're at the diner. Yeah. Well, he's having to think quick in that scene, isn't he? Because I think that I, I really enjoy the way that scene plays out because he is saying things, reacting things she's saying, oh, shit. And he seems upset and annoyed. And you think it's because he's feeling sorry for her when really he's feeling sorry for himself. All these things are uh, are actually meaning that his plot has been ruined. Yeah. Yeah. But there is that. I, I, I think I, I have no doubt that if I watched it a third time, um, I, that it would be explained. But I did sort of come away going, surely if at that point he'd not helped her and like made it uh, like uh, where like the toxicology report had come through. Oh, maybe not. No, because the toxicology report would have proved her innocence. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, um. Uh, I will say that there is a lot of fun to be had watching it a second time because just before the will reading, when the whole family are going, Marta, we will look after you. We've had a conversation. We're going to look after you. When the will's read, you're not going to, we're going to look after you. And then uh, you don't know at that point, the will is going to go in her favor uh, when you watch it the first time. No. And the first time you watch it, when the will, when Frank Oz reads out the will and it does go in her favor, Ransom smiles and you think he's laughing because the rest of his family are screwed and he hates them all. But he's actually smiling because that's how oh, yeah. he knew he knew that was coming, oh, and it means good. his plot's all 
you know, coming together. Um, I've got a section coming up where actually we talk about all the ways that it's pointing to him earlier in the film, but you don't realise the first time you watch it. Okay. Uh, But we've got the blackmail plot next, which um, culminates with the dumbest car chase of all time. I love that car chase. Yeah, it's fun. Her car car being slower than the police cars, but (laughs) through her smarts, she's able to out. Oh, just more that you've got Chris Evans in a car and you think, oh, we might have a proper car chase. And then just watching the speedometer like struggle to hit 60 is it's my sort of thing. I thought it was very funny. Yeah, I just I, I didn't I don't I didn't need it. It felt like there was a car chase in it for the sake of having a little bit of a action in there. But I'll explain why I, I don't like that whole section of the film uh, towards the end. And then we're into the solution. Um so Benoit is talking about a case with a hole in the middle, a donut. One central piece will reveal itself and the fog will lift. And then he says the donut has a hole <laughs> in its whole centre. That all gets a bit confusing. Um, do I need to explain uh, the explanation to all this um, and the fact that it was ransom? Um, or should we just talk around it? Like a donut. <laughs> <laughs> I, I switched off at that point. I was just like, get on with like, get on with catching him. Just get on with revealing who the killer is. I didn't get the donut speech at all. No, uh, but he does talk about the Slayer rule, and that hasn't got anything to do with Buffy, but it is real. I bet it is, uh, and rightly so. <laughs> in the common law of inheritance, the Slayer rule stops a person inheriting property from a person they murder. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> common sense. Um, so, uh, Ransom has been the, uh, villain all along and, uh, hiding in plain sight. Let's talk about the ways in which the film is telling you who has done it and who hasn't, uh, before you really realise it. Uh, we realise at the end that Benoit Blanc has seen blood on Marta's foot when he meets her. Um, he says that at the end and that's the moment he knew. And if you rewatch that scene, he does look down at her foot twice. It's quite an odd thing he does, but you're not really paying attention to it the first time you watch it. He says to her later in the film, something is afoot with this whole affair. I know it and I believe you know it too. (laughs) That's telling us that and literally talking about her foot. And then even later in the film, he says to her, the game is afoot, Watson. So we've got a lot of foot action going on here. (laughs) Um, The film also begins with dogs running towards the camera in slow motion. Later in the film, Benoit claims the best judge of character is a dog. Uh, He says that while Marta is playing with them lovingly and they are attacking Ransom moments later. Yeah. So again, we're being told this, but you can't really see it through the fog of trying to figure out this other stuff. And also, also you hear the dogs at the start, don't you? The dogs are barking around the time of the murder and the only other time they bark is when Ransom comes back. So you know that he's been back. He didn't leave completely. Yeah. Dogs are the best. Uh, I said about Ransom in the diner, um, we think he feels sorry for her, but really he's feeling sorry for himself. He says, shit, we think it's for her. It's really for himself. Um, when uh, when Fran is dying, uh, Fran, who's doing the blackmail, we think she's saying, you did this. You won't get away with it. But she's saying, you did this. I love stuff like do you that. Think, do, you know, yeah. do you think that's too contrived or are you I, happy I with do. it? I do. I totally do. I can, you can see it coming a mile off, but I still don't care. I love it. And Ransom, t- literally Ransom tells us this. He says, call me Ransom. It's my middle name. Only the help called me Hugh. Brilliant. So we should have been paying Remember attention. Remember that later. 
And in another nice bit of setup and payoff, um, Harlan, at the start of the film, says Ransom is playing life like a game with no consequences until you, you can't tell the difference between a stage prop <laughs> and a real knife. Quick question. Yeah. I get it. And, oh, look, you've got a massive wheel of knives. And I bet that becomes important later. Yeah. Is the phrase, you want? Is he's basically saying, you need to be careful, son, otherwise you're going to end up not being able to tell the difference between a prop knife and a real knife. Is that an accepted turn of phrase to the point where you would want to visualise that? And it's not like saying that boy needs to be careful or I can't think, I literally can't think of any single phrase, like too many cooks spoil the broth and then pay off loads of cooks spoil some broth. Do you know what I mean? Is the phrase, you, Chris Tilly, you cannot tell the difference between a prop knife and a real knife. You are getting on my nerves. My, my, dad's, my dad always said <laughs> it to me. Like, does he say that because they had this cool wheel of knives and it's a cool thing to do, which is absolutely fine. But the turn of phrase, I was like, that's that's not a thing. No, it's not. A, it's not a phrase. Okay. <laughs> That's the answer. No. I love the payoff, but the vomit thing when Chris Evans jumps on top of Marta and tries to kill her, sort of sealing the deal for him in terms of his guilt. But it's a prop knife, not a real knife, so he literally can't tell the difference. I was like, "That's cool. That's it. that whole moment has so much energy between the two of them." But his face is covered in vomit, and I just can't deal with it. I can't look at him. No, and I should say because I do always say um, when there's vomit or poo in a film that I've got a problem with it. And I do have a problem with it, but I liked it more here than in other films. So I'm going to let it off. But I feel like it'd be remiss of me not to hold my hands up and say this is a, an issue I have. Do what you do, you think it's too much? You think it changes the tone of this clever? No, I'm I'm cool with it. it. I'm not. I just wanted to just acknowledge it. But it's clearly Vicky's got more of a problem with it than me. I can't cope with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, right. Enough vomit. Do you want some trivia for this one? Yes. Go on. So I've got some good ones here because I covered this one uh, at length last year. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in every one of Ryan's films. Did you spot him in this film? Oh, yes. I didn't. Go on, Alex. Oh. He is the voice of the police officer detective on the laptop that Marta's sister is watching at the start. No way! Detective Hard Rock. Oh, that's a good fact. Um, this is a better one. Um, Apple will not allow... Uh, villains to use iPhones in movies. Really? And there's a lot of iPhones in this film and Marta uh, uses an iPhone. So as soon as you see that, you know she's not the murderer. That And that applies wow. to any film you watch. Really? No murderer is allowed to use an Apple product in a movie. <laughs> because in real life, no murderers <laughs> have ever used an Apple product. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what they're thinking, is there? I think people stop buying Apple iPhones. <laughs> well, if that <laughs> fictional murderer has used that phone, then it's Samsung for me, I'm afraid. That, that, would be, that would be hilarious if in real life someone was on trial for committing a crime and they'd definitely done it, but then they pulled out their iPhone in the court yeah. and started using it. And people were like, oh, can't yeah. be him. Just, because just everyone go home. Gone. This is solved. Yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, he's using the iPhone clause, so he walks. <laughs> he walks. Uh, a bit more trivia. This one's mad. Uh, the painting of Harlan in the hall of the house, yeah. it wasn't finished when they shot the movie. So they green screened it uh, in the film. And that meant they could do something a bit funny at the end. So uh, all the way through the film, that painting is frowning, but at the end, it's smiling. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Little tidbit in the background. Um, a scene that you liked, Alex, the uh, eat shit scene. Um, in, the script, <laughs> in the script, that was the fuck you scene. 
Uh, so Ransom says, fuck you to everyone. But Ryan uh, suddenly realised he wanted this to be a family film and he didn't want it to get an R rating. So he changed it and Chris Evans suggested eat shit. Um, and finally... Eat shit is better. Finally, this carries over from um, the Rocketeer episode. Great Nana Winetta. Did you recognise her? Um, no, but there's only two women in... Three women in Rocketeer. So it's not Jennifer Connelly. No, she's not in The Rocketeer, but she plays Martha Kent in Superman. Oh, and, and Superman's dad. Yeah. Is it Superman's The Rocketeer? From, what is it? The New Adventures of Superman? Is that, that was, what it was called? Whatever the one it was called. with... Um, the Dean Cain one. Terry Hatcher, is that yes. what she's called? And although she plays great Nana Waynetta in this film, uh, Christopher Plummer's mother, she's actually 10 years younger than Christopher Plummer. Because <laughs> 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 Christopher Plummer is 150 years old. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, that's your lot. Any more for any more? Should we do the bits? Uh, yeah, let's do the bits, my end. Okay, my well, house. you start then, Alex. What is your favourite scene? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, All right, I've got it. Here it is. Best scene is uh, at the start. It's not really one scene. <laughs> uh, I've done that thing where I've picked a whole selection of scenes. It's when Lakeith Stanfield, Noah Segan and... Daniel Craig are all interviewing each of the uh, family, uh, the thrombies, one by one in the room, and it keeps flashing back between the party, and they're all contradicting what each other's saying. I love that conceit. I love that setup. I love the conveyor belt of them going into the room and Benoit Blanc controlling what Lakeith Stanfield says by tapping a key hmm. of the piano and Noah Segan dropping in ridiculously brilliant uh, little comedy asides. Uh, I love that. So that part, which is going to come into play when we get a bit further into the bits, is my favourite bit. Vicky? Exactly the same. Ex- word for word, what Alex just said. Cool. Apart from, I do have Yay. a fondness for that car chase. Uh, but no, the interview can see does the setup of all of that. Cool. Uh, I'll, I'm going to say a couple of things here. I, my favourite line is when Walt says, I'm not eating one iota of shit. I don't know if you picked up on that because it's quite in the background. Um, But I think it's such a funny line. And that was also a Michael Shannon ad lib. God love him. God love that man. I would be nervous if I met that man. He could he could tell me to do anything. (laughs) It's off the back of the eat shit line, isn't it? You could just hear him mumble it. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant. And I do, I mean, it's a bit heavy handed, but I do like when we see the mug that says my house, the final image of the film oh, when yeah, they're all looking up good. her. That's yeah. really cool. But um, I'm going to pick um, what what um, Ryan Johnson called the, his Walter White moment in the film. So, so Ryan Johnson directed several of the best episodes of Breaking Bad. And I would say maybe the most memorable scene in Breaking Bad or the big turning point is when Walter sees Jesse's girlfriend dying. <gasps> I think about that all the time. And he gave that moment to Marta with Fran when Fran is, she thinks Fran has been blackmailing her yeah. and Fran is dying. Yeah. And she can either let her die yeah. or she can give her the kiss of life and call 911. I've run cold. That's, mm. Have you seen it? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. And so uh, Marta helps Fran and I just think it's a really great character moment. Yeah. And, uh, it, that pays homage to a great TV moment. Oh, that's, I've gone to a different place. <laughs> uh, MVW, most valuable whatever. Uh, Vicky. Uh, it's production designer David Crank mm. for everything in that mansion. Um, uh, the Wheel of Knives in particular, but um, all the sort of added detail that you that I read about in an interview, and I, I didn't, to be honest, notice it, but it is the only, I've only seen it once. Uh, but I can 
I can sort of sense its presence. Um, there are like hidden murder dioramas around the place. Um, there's a bar that's made out of a doll's house, which I would personally love very much to have. Um, and um, so it was someone's job to come up with like four decades worth of book jackets for Harlan's work. It's like mm. the level of detail. Also... This makes me sound like a bit of a twat, but I really love that wallpaper, and I really have got my eye on it. Just and the way that the, the you know the secret passageways, the rich carpet, the tapestries, the studies, everything about that house, I was in love. And with. there's Easter eggs everywhere, like the the dummy of a sailor that you see very early in the film. That is a direct homage to Sleuth. And so he's oh, put little right, bits and yeah. pieces in there from stuff like Death Trap and Sleuth and his favorite films. Yeah. in this genre, it's so lush. I loved it. Alex, my MVW um, is Noah Segan. Um, so, um, are you just saying that, Al? No, I, I absolutely love him in this movie. I think he's fantastic. He plays that super fan role to perfection. Very good. Uh, I'm going to have to say Ryan Johnson because this movie is nothing without him. I think he does succeed in turning a whodunit into a thriller and then back into a whodunit, which is really clever. And it's all the film's got all the fun of figuring out that puzzle, but also gives us an emotional payoff, which you don't always get in these whodunits. They can run a little cold. So um, I think he did an amazing job with this film. If you could change anything, what would that be? Alex? Uh, I Going back to the point I made earlier about my best scene being that whole um, Benoit Blanc and the cops interviewing the family one by one and flashing back to the party, I would have set the entire film in the house, which goes back to why I don't like the car chase or indeed anything that happens in the town, the toxicology blood bank that gets burned down, the laundromat where they find um, the, uh, the, uh, the maid and um, all of it. I, I cut it all out because and I, I, I think you'll, you'll agree with this, Vicky, because as a fan of Agatha Christie, like her murder mysteries work so well because it separates the cast from the world yeah. through whatever means they, they choose to, like a snowstorm traps them in an old mansion or they're, they're stuck on a boat or you know stuck on a train in the middle of nowhere. Whatever, it's like you're trapped there Someone's the murderer, and it's about working it out. And it's it's all set in this one location, and it feels very separate from reality. And this film works best when it's happening in the house, and it's separate from the real world. And once you're sort of driving around blood banks and stuff, I'm like, this isn't the kind of whodunit I want to see. So I'd have set it all in the house. Good answer, Vicky. Yeah, that is a good answer. At the vomit thing. Mm. Um, if uh, maybe I'm missing something very intentional and really obvious, but if Daniel Craig is such a good detective. He doesn't need a human lie detector. Um, and there's another way, maybe there's another way of doing it where you have martyr, you have an Achilles heel and you have a weakness, but it isn't. It just seems so improbable that that's a thing. And uh, yeah, it's just like, it, it just didn't, I just didn't like it. Also, really simple change, but I feel really strongly that if it was 20 minutes shorter, it would be so electric and it just dragged a little bit for mm. me. I think the runtime is just a bit too long. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, for me, I, I appreciate the film is trying to reflect what's happening in society at the moment, as Agatha Christie did in her day. And when families get together, <clears throat> we do all argue about politics. Um, but the, the, the constant references to the alt-right and trolls and snowflakes and Nazis and children in cages and America for Americans, it did feel a bit shoehorned into me and it took me out of the movie a little bit. Um, and I feel uh, like Alex with his, his change. If you took those out, 
it wouldn't change the movie at all that much. And so I just felt it was a little heavy handed and I think it could have been and maybe it's that teenage character, really. I just didn't quite buy him. I think if you'd had more of an interplay between the teenage girl, so Meg, and what's the alt-right troll called? He's called Jacob. Yeah. All they do is, is shout opposing insults at each other. So you're a liberal snowflake, you're an alt-right troll. Mm. And so those are just the opposite ends of the spectrum. If you'd seen a bit more interplay between them, maybe they secretly really get on or they really hate each other, but it's a personal thing as well, rather yeah. than them embodying the opposite sides of the political spectrum, it might feel a bit less like wedged in. But then I think the, I think it's a lot about power and you need to have a character like Marta whose power, uh, people assume everything's fine and it isn't fine and she's got to do a different dance depending on who she's talking to. And with Harlan, she felt... But then maybe that's why I wanted it to reverse a bit because he's very patriotic towards her, literally patriotic towards her. Um, patriotic? That's not right. You mean put a miss in front of it. Miss Patriotic. What am I trying to say? Not patriotic. Oh my god, I've gone mental. What is it with mental you want to do all the time? Um, conversation. <laughs> Shut up. Oh my is god. It, wait, Pat- uh, wait, Vicky, patriarch- Vicky, patriarchal. Vicky. Patriarchal. Yeah. Fucking hell. Did, did, were you thinking of disogyny? <laughs> He's not patriotic, especially. I don't think he loves his country that much. He's patriarchal. He's fatherly. He's literally fatherly towards her, but he's also patriarchal in that he pays her wages and she has to stay in his good books, otherwise she has no job. So her power isn't all hers. And the film does a very good job of um, illuminating that subtly, gently and all the rest of it. And you need to have a character like that, I think, for it to work. And so then the politics may, may be an integral part of it, is what I'm saying. Fair enough. I think there's something I, I'm really worried about myself. Do you know how many times in a week I say patriarchal? Like 150. <laughs> so what is wrong with me? I think you're lowballing that, but... <laughs> Uh, right should we do the verdict yeah oh right Uh, yeah so this week um, I'm changing uh, the the verdict uh, from the verdict to who won it who won it and sorry can I just say as well if you stick around to the end um, we'll be getting Noah's bits as well and talking a bit more about the film but sorry back to you Alex and your changing of the verdict Yep, so uh, because we're doing Who Done It, it's the Who Won It section. It's the verdict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! Right then, uh, I'll go last, seeing as I pick these movies. Um, uh, I think I'm pretty sure I know which way both of you are going to go this week, but I'm not going to spoil it, but I think the one who's most obvious is Victoria. I think I know which way you're going, but Victoria, which film are you voting for? I am going to pick... Uh, only because I cared more about the characters because there was more of a dramatic thread running through the central mystery. And that's important to me in um, a story like this. So it's Knives Out. Okay, Chris, I'm going to jump in here just to um, suggest that there is an element of jeopardy because I think I know which way you're going. Uh, I might be wrong, but I'm going with uh, Clue because Tim Curry, because... Tim Curry. So I'm going for Clue. That's one to Knives Out and one to Clue. Chris, you have the deciding vote. You just went for Clue? Yeah, I just went for Clue, yeah. You sure? 100%. Yeah. We can re-record this Did you not bit? hear me? I, I, wait, hang on, let me just read my notes. I'm going for Clue because Tim Curry... Because Tim Curry, because Tim Curry, yeah, I, I loved it, and there was a lot of nostalgia for me in rewatching it. And I don't, I honestly, I don't think I've seen Knives Out twice, and 
I, I don't think it's as clever as it thinks it is. I find it a little bit, um, just a little bit, I find the, the whodunit element a little bit not as interesting. I wanted a real, you know, Chris Evans ultimately being like done for, what's the, what's the maid's name? I keep forgetting Martha. the maid's name. Or Fran. Martha, no, Fran. Um uh, Chris Evans sort of being done for Fran's murder and like the whole thing about Christopher Plummer committing suicide and then not needing to commit suicide and the viscosity of the liquids and Marta being a good nurse as a wrap up. It was I found it very unsatisfying. I think I I I, I expected more from what had gone before. I think it was I wanted a real a real murderer, a really good murder and a real I just yeah. So anyway, clue. You made me elaborate. I didn't want a clue. <laughs> I wish you hadn't now. Um, Ryan Johnson toys with the whodunit, taking the conventions of the subgenre, initially adhering to them, then poking fun at the form before flipping audience expectations on their head. From frame one, writer, director and cast are clearly having a blast and that mix of comedy and mystery makes it a genuine crowd pleaser. Moreover, through clever plotting and smart sleight of hand, Johnson has crafted a whodunit that's worthy of Agatha Christie or Arthur Conan Doyle and one that will have audiences guessing until the final few reels. And clue... Isn't a very good film. So, <laughs> did you just reread just your his review? Own work. Yeah. Was that oh the... my well, god! Why would I double dip on my own work? I, that was dated September the tenth, twenty nineteen. Why would I do it all over again? I just, just to show willing. Can I just say, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of double dip. Also, it may, I, it's a, it's a weird term. So I, I can sort of just about stomach it when it's said in the movie, but I don't want you to start using double dip. I don't know why. I'm just telling you as a turn of phrase. It makes me uncomfortable. When you tell me not to do something, Alex, what's going to happen? <laughs> Happen. Think about it. This is um, also, shouldn't we be celebrating a Knives Out win? Victoria? Oh. I didn't vote for it. <laughs> it's just normally your job to say, yay, well done. Oh, I'll do an impression of you. Congratulations to the winner this week, Knives Out. Yay! yay. Okay, I'll do an impression of you, a really misserving winner. <laughs> oh, 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 you are missed. <laughs> <laughs> or do you mean dissed? <laughs> wow, it works on so many levels. We're quite good at this. Sometimes it frightens me. <laughs> uh, right then, uh, yes, uh, absolutely congratulations uh, to Knives Out, the winner this week, uh, and commiserations to uh, Mr Tim Curry and Clue. Uh, we will be back next week uh, with a two brand new movies to discuss on Clash of the Titles. Chris... Are you going to reveal what they are? What was the clue again? Uh, Oscar winners in orbit. And then there was a uh, better clue posted on Twitter. Okay. So what are we doing? Uh, Alex, uh, I'm taking you back to 1997 for the film Contact. And Vicky, you are heading to 2014 for Interstellar. Hooray! So... uh, Contact is available to rent on Amazon in the UK and Interstellar is on Sky and also available to rent on Amazon. Uh, Contact comes in at 2 hours 30 minutes, Interstellar 2 hours 49 minutes. So (laughs) apologies, guys, that's a 5 hour 19 minute episode. Bloody hell. Holy shit. (laughs) What? I forgot I I didn't know that. that Mm. Uh, (laughs) I love Clue. It's like 90 minutes long or something. (laughs) Brilliant. Uh, Right then. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, we are always on Twitter at ClashPod and you can email us show at ClashPod.com. Thank you very much for listening. Back on Monday.
And also stick around for Noah Segan's bits. Noah Segan's bits. Yeah, that's uh, that's coming. It's coming up as well. So stick around for those. Uh, they're coming up now, in fact. And then I'll, I'll we'll just say bye and hand you over to Chris and Noah. Okay, bye. Bye. No, you're sticking around. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, we've just done what we call the bits. So now it's your turn to do uh, your bits. Um, so what was your favourite scene in the film? Oof, that's tough. I think we shot the end sequence over, I want to say it was three or four days from starting where the cops kind of come in with Marta and then there's the whole bit where 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 Blanc says, you know, I think it's Trooper Wagner, but then Trooper Wagner comes in and he's got Ransom and Ransom, as it turns out, is the bad guy. And he goes on. I haven't done much theater, but that sequence felt like we were performing a play because it's so long. Mm. And Daniel and Chris have so much theater experience that it felt like they were kind of relishing the uh, experience of sort of doing these 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 this big scene sort of live over and over again and 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 so it I I think that that might be my my favorite scene. Uh, who is your MVP of the film? And I can tell you that the votes from the three of us one went to Ryan Johnson, uh, one went to your set dresser, your set decorator, the production designer, and one went to Noah Seagan. Got a vote. Oh, oh, really? My oh, colleague well, Alex you. I'm, I'm um, thinks I'm you honored. are the funniest thing in it. So um, who is your MVP of this movie? The, the check is in the mail, Alex. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I mean, it's tough because every single person in this movie has their moment and every single uh, crew member has their moment. I mean, it's really tough. I got to say that, that, I am constantly wowed by by Kay, by Kay Callan, um, who plays uh, the uh, real matriarch. I, I, I think I called Jamie the matriarch of the sort of second generation, but she's the grandmama of the family. And she is just such an incredible actor in that she is able to perform that role without mostly saying a word and you know exactly who she is and exactly what the tone is and it fits perfectly with the rest of the cast and crew um and uh and she's just a lovely person and so i'm, I'm gonna go with Kay. i'm so glad you picked her that's such a great choice um if you could change anything in the film what would that be i feel weird asking you that question I don't know if it would if I would change anything in the film, but I would maybe have put a little button or a tag at the end promoting the spin-off OK Cops that I want to do, <laughs> um, which is the tagline for OK Cops, which is about uh, uh, Lakeith and, and myself, our characters, is just they're fine. <laughs> they're fine. They can, they, they'll probably solve it. What happens in OK Cops? Not much. They don't really accomplish a whole lot. I mean, they—that's they, the thing—is, um, uh, you know, they're 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 serviceable. They get a case, and then they kind of, you know, sort of work on it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Ryan has promised us more Benoit Blanc uh, movies. Could we see Trooper Wagner teaming up with him again in the future? I can't tell you uh, one way or another because uh, I don't know 
you know, quite what uh, our our man has in store for us. But uh, needless to say, whatever it is, uh, I would be there. Awesome. I'll keep my fingers crossed. And finally, the big question, um, what is the better movie, Clue or Knives Out? Um, I can tell you that we already did our vote and Knives Out won two to one. I was, I'm still smarting from the fact that someone voted for Clue, but that's fine. And when we asked Ryan this question last year about young Sherlock Holmes and Brick, I will let you know he picked, on this show, he picked young Sherlock Holmes being the modest man that he is. So I don't know if that puts any pressure on you. But uh, what's the better movie, Clue or Knives Out? Ryan and I are very close friends, long-term friends, work together a lot. Um, we have a lot in common, but something that we do not share is modesty. Um, so I am going to get high on my own supply, and I am going to say that uh, as lovely as Clue is, it it and and as and as much as it is comfort food for me, and it is one of my favorite films, it only goes to show you how good Knives Out is. That Knives Out is the better movie uh, because Clue is a masterpiece. A thousand percent. Knives Out is the correct answer. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Noah. Have you got anything you want to plug at the moment? No, just, you know, uh, stay stay safe, uh, wash your hands, wear a mask, Black Lives Matter, um, all of the important things uh, that we should concentrate on while we all wait to uh, get back and make you guys more stuff to watch. Awesome. And um, if you guys want to follow Noah, he's at KidBlue on Twitter. And finally, Noah, will you please come back and speak to us when we do Looper? Ooh, yes, absolutely. I would, I would, I would love to. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, Noah. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.